Well, and it's not that there's an educational crisis happening now. There's been an educational crisis happening since the dawn of public education. <laughs> That's what other people don't realize. Like most people don't, they, they don't think there's one now and they don't realize that there always has been one. There's never been a time where there's not been one. If you consider a majority of American students below proficiency a crisis as I do. So there's never been a time in our country's history when a majority of students have been at the proficient level, not once. Hi, I'm Nick Ninton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. Thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Now to Next with Nick Nanton. There's lots of ends in that. Hope you enjoy that alliteration as we're talking about learning. I'll bring back my uh, my school learnedness. I uh, got a great guest for you here, uh, Dr. Kimberly Behrens, and she you can see her. So I might as well say hello now. How are you doing, Kimberly? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. So I'm going to give a brief bio in a second, but basically I was out doing uh, interviews for a documentary that we were making called The Truth About Reading uh, with the John Corcoran Foundation and our friend Nora Chabazi. And uh, she introduced us to you. And I had a conversation with you that I looked at the other day. We had a 90 minute conversation on camera, which I don't normally have the attention span for that. Um, <laughs> I guess that would be pathologized as ADHD as we will talk about later. Exactly. Um, but it was an amazing conversation. I think it's an eye-opening conversation that so many parents need to hear. Um, yeah. We're not. Uh, there's a lot of things that we're going to talk about today that, uh, for some funny reason, I can't quite figure out why they're controversial. But for some reason, they are. Cr they create controversy. But uh, there are so many things that. If I were a parent with a struggling child in school, uh, I'd, I'd want to hear about. I, I think, you know, to set the tone, um, there are people who do have true disabilities, uh, but there's a very, very, very small percentage of people. And so we're going to talk about how people get pushed into these boxes, how parents get pushed in these boxes. And as a parent who's not in the school system, um, we have to choose to be advocates for our children. But at some point we wonder, are we crazy and we just don't get it because we're made to feel these ways? Um, and so I just thought it was a conversation that, first of all, I've privately shared your interview with a, a couple parent friends of mine who I'm just like, hey, keep your head up. There's a lot of hope. So let me give you a brief bio. We have so much to talk about. Uh, here we go. Dr. Kimberly Nix Behrens is the founder of Fit Learning and regional director of Fit Learning Tri-State. She's an educational researcher who has published and presented extensively on science-based approaches to education, speaking at over 30 regional, national, and international conferences. In 1998, as a doctoral student in learning and behavioral science, Dr. Behrens founded Fit Learning in a broom closet on campus at the University of Nevada, Reno. Since her humble beginnings, Dr. Behrens has driven the expansion of Fit Learning by establishing a formal certification in her method of instruction, which is called the Technology of Teaching. Fit Learning now has 31 locations worldwide with three to five new locations opening each year. For the past 20 years, Dr. Behrens and her team have refined their system of instruction using behavioral and cognitive science. As a result, her system produces over one year of academic growth in just 40 hours of instruction. And based on what I've seen, that can be in almost any subject. Uh, Dr. Behrens currently lives in Long Island with her husband, Nick, and two children, Emma and Jack. 
She has a book out. It's her first book called Blind Spots, Why Students Fail and the Science That Can Save Them uh, in the book. So Kimberly, did I mess anything up or is that pretty close? <laughs> that was pretty good. All right, good. Hey, I got I got a good team that helps me uh, with my inconsistencies, so they're good. All right, so let's talk a little bit about you. Grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Your dad was a psychiatrist. Your mom worked in the hospital system with children. Um, tell me about your path to becoming a behavioral scientist. I know at five years old you were dreaming in your bedroom as a little girl. I cannot wait to be a behavioral scientist. So tell me about that journey. Yeah, it definitely wasn't the case. So, you know, I did have, uh, you know, uh, influence from my, from both, from my whole family in a lot of ways, because I had a, you know, a, a lot of medical doctors in my family, scientists, and my father was a physician and then eventually moved into psychiatry. So, you know, he was always fascinated by why people do what they do, but he went at it from the medical angle and from the traditional kind of psychiatric angle. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I became interested in the, in the sciences, really biology um, in high school. And so when I went to Rollins College, right in your backyard, Nick, um, it is. when I went to place. Rollins College, I really planned to, you know, major in biology and minor in psychology. Um, and but I took my first intro to psychology course because I always thought, you know, my dad was my influence in psychology. So I always thought psychology was kind of a bunch of fluffy theories you know, like people making up a theory about and just making stuff up. And I really was interested in the hard sciences. So um, I took my first intro to psychology class and it was one of these intro classes where the experts in each area taught a section. And so for the learning course, like the learning section of the course, which was really the behavioral science section, um, this woman walked in, my mentor who became my mentor, Maria Ruiz, um, she was a revered professor at Rollins College and unfortunately died tragically too early from cancer. Um, but when she walked in the room, she was this tiny little Cuban lady. I mean, the tiniest person you've ever seen in your life walking in and she started talking and I, it was one of those moments where it was like a lightning bolt struck me in the face where I was like, you mean there's a science, like a hard science that, uh, you know, uh, behind human behavior? and why we learn to do stuff, I had, I just had no idea. You know, I was used to it all being pathologies and pharmaceuticals and that stuff from my, from my dad, not to throw him under the bus, but you know, that was his angle. Right. So she just blew my mind. Um, and so from that moment forward, I actually switched to majoring in psych and, and, you know, had less of a, less of an emphasis in bio at that point. And that was it. I mean, I, she became a mentor to me. I mean, that's one of the beauties of a small liberal arts college. You know, it's almost like a graduate level education if you want it. Um, so she became my mentor and, and that was it. I started, you know, I started working in a, in a residential treatment facility right in the Orlando area that was called Threshold. And it was for adults with profound disabilities and was applying the principles of behavior there and under a, another mentor named Ed Blakely, who's really big in, in Florida for this. And anyway, so that's kind of how I started. It was just an accident that this woman walked into my life and changed it forever. If you know what I mean. <laughs> that is often how it happens. Um, yeah. Talk a little about um, with Dr. Blakely. You did some work also because I think it's interesting with with autistic children. And yes. 
what I don't understand autism, I mean, I guess there's most of the world doesn't understand autism very well. Right. It's so complex. But it's interesting that it, it is a spectrum, which I would imagine every one of these uh, learning challenges could be on a spectrum too. Like I might Absolutely. might have problems with color, but I might have problems with, le- like, it's just, so I think that to me that was informative of you learned how to work on a spectrum and I'm sure you saw all sorts of things. Tell me a little bit about working with autistic children. What Were you able to, to learn anything or discover any breakthroughs or what was that like? Oh my gosh. So, I mean, that was the beginning of my career was, was working with, you know, with first adults and then children. I mean, I helped start a, a school in Orlando. I mean, again, winning the lottery all these many times, but, you know, Ed Blakely asked me to help start a preschool for kids with autism in Orlando, which was the first, um, you know, this was back in the nineties, which is shocking because now early intervention for kids with autism is, is everywhere, but it wasn't um, even, in, you know, in the mid nineties, it, it wasn't. And so I helped as an, you know, an undergrad. And then I took a gap year before grad school doing that with him, starting a preschool for kids with autism. And, you know, behavior, you know, here's the thing, behavioral science is the science behind the learning process, which applies to every human being on the planet. But when you're dealing with kids who are on the spectrum that have, such a profound barrier to learning from the natural environment, which is really, you know, what is what is the main kind of characteristic of kids on the spectrum is, is they don't learn from the natural environment and the same way that, you know, neurotypical children do. So their, their environments, you know, all learners learn better with precisely designed environments, but children on the spectrum, you know, they require precise design of the learning environment to to acquire adaptive skills, to acquire language, and then eventually to acquire academic skills. So, you know, I always say for anyone entering the field of behavior science, it's always good to start with that type of population because that's where the most rigorous and intensive kind of application of our science has to occur because they're so challenging to teach um, because there's so much going on there for, for, you know, the, they're inattentive. They, you know, they, they tend to engage in some over what we call kind of over selectivity where they attend to irrelevant features of an aspect of the environment that then compete with them being able to be, you know, learn the, the adaptive skill they need. I mean, there's a lot that you have to be such a profoundly creative and informed educator to teach those kids and and behavioral science is the only access to that. I mean, um, and also they have so much maladaptive behavior that can get in the way, which is, you know, kind of comorbid with that diagnosis, mainly because they do struggle to learn language. And so they never transition out of that, that stage of tantruming and crying as the only form of communication that all kids are born doing. But then that eventually switches over to talking, whereas kids with autism don't necessarily make that switch on their own. So that crying repertoire, you know, gets in the way of their learning a lot of of things if you don't understand how to design environments according to behavioral science. So it's it's a profound learning process um, starting in that realm. Yeah, so that that was obviously a, a, a like a nuclear learning lab for you with sort of the, yes. the hardest cases, uh, and uh, you you know as you talk about in the book you had uh, you had an interest in helping people with disabilities, but then you you found right. some pretty interesting things about like 
children without disabilities in the regular school system. And by the way, we'll talk about more, but that's public, private. It, it doesn't really matter based on the type of instruction that's going around. Uh, and, and what was hap happening in mainstream education? Uh, yeah. What happened next? So you're interested, you've been working at Quest, you're now you're getting yeah. your PhD. What's going on? What happens next? Yeah, so I, I, I was accepted in the doctoral program at the University of Nevada, um, which was my first choice. It, it is an amazing behavior analysis, behavioral science program there. So I moved out to Reno, Nevada. Random, right? I mean, I'm from Atlanta. I'm in Orlando. Then all of a sudden, I'm heading out west with my husband, Nick Barons. We had gotten married, and then we headed out west to move to Reno. Um, and again, I was actually recruited to that program to run their autism program because they have, you know, a big early intervention program for kids with autism. So I was actually kind of brought out there to do that, um, which I did. You know, I ran that program for a few years. But again, there was this inkling underneath that, that, you know, we're making such profound impacts with all of these kids with profound disabilities. But I knew, you know, I went through the school system, you know, by luck. I, you know, made it out and became successful, you know, and I'd seen, I just knew what the school system actually produced just for my own life. And then I also knew because I was, you know, I educated myself about it. And it was so shocking to me that the only place that behavior analysis or behavioral science was known was in the area of profound disabilities, where you know teachers getting trained in main, for mainstream education, you know, in colleges of ed, zero training in behavioral science, the science behind the learning process, nowhere to be found, um, and you know, schools not designed based on it, you know, instruction not designed based on it. It was just shocking to me, um, and we were just mar, you know, our science is just kind of marginalized into these extreme realms of our culture where it's really, really a problem. And like, we're the only hope. But then when it comes to like kids who can, you know, like it's just kind of sloppy um, in, in the mainstream world. So it, it was infuriating to me. And then there was two other grad students that felt the same. And, um, you know, we all got to hear this amazing guy in my field, Carl Binder speak at a conference. And, and he talked about, you know, this, the application of this to instruction. And we, we all were like, that's it. Like we're starting a pilot project at UNR because UNR wasn't doing this at all. Like we weren't doing mainstream education work. So we just started, we asked the faculty and they were like, go for it. You're not, we're not paying you. I mean, it's all volunteer, like in your spare time, which is not a lot when you're a doctoral student, but whatever. Yeah. So we got a, and the only space we could get on campus was this creepy janitor's closet that we turned into a session room and tried to make not look like a serial killer's lair. I, I think we did an okay job, but I don't know. Parents brought their kids there. So anyway, so it started out as this just really podunk duct tape together thing. But, you know, we had science on our side, man. And when you have science on your side, evolution and progress and advancement is, is ensured. I mean, and that's, just what happened. I mean, we just did the work. We did the science and we were careful and precise. And, you know, we had, we held our values, which was, you know, applying the science and, and ensuring we're being effective. Um, and over time, you know, we just gradually got moved to bigger and bigger classrooms as the program became more and more popular. And then the Reno Gazette Journal did a big article on us and that was it. Everything exploded. And then the College of Education got really mad at us because they had an after-school tutoring program and they were losing kids in droves over to the behavior science program. And, you know, the people over there were like, behavior scientists have no business 
working and reading and mathematics. Anyway, so they had a lot more money than we did. We were the rejects, you know, at table 10. <laughs> <laughs> like we were in the old crappy buildings, the behavior science people, like the rejects over here. So they had a lot more power with the university and they shut us down. They And so that was when my husband and I, and my husband had gotten involved as well. Like he went, he um, was also a graduate student. He had gotten interested and involved and we both were like, this can't happen. Like this cannot happen. They can't like cut us, like shut this down. The, the people in the community were outraged. So we were in graduate school still with a do baby daughter and we were like, all right, I guess we're starting a business, <laughs> which I had known nothing about. Didn't even have a business plan. Um, anyway, so we started a private company off campus and we still maintained an affiliation with the university where we had graduate students and coming to get training and did, had, a, had a research lab. And anyway, so that's how it started. And now 37, 35, almost 37 locations later, here we are. <laughs> I love it. And so one thing that I loved about speaking with you and many people who speak about education this way, um, let's talk about teachers for a minute. Let's talk about, um, because I, if, if someone just tuned in right there, they might think you are angry at teachers, blaming teachers. I know that not to be true, but tell me about teachers and the system that they're in and, and your opinion on that. Well, you know, one of the biggest, one of the most damaging myths um, in our culture is the myth of talent. And, you know, that's everywhere. But where I, for my personal and professional world, the, where it's most damaging is in the area of, in, of teaching. Because when teachers go into colleges of education, it's instantiated that you're either a good teacher or you're a bad teacher. And if you're a good teacher, it's almost inherently part of your personality. It's almost like a part of your being. It's like who you are as a person. And it's this mythical, mystical thing. Um, as if it's not a repertoire of behavior you can teach. So it becomes extremely personal, right? It's an extremely personal thing. So, so, so what, I, what I say about teachers is teachers are victims of, of inadequate training, period. You know, being an effective educator is a repertoire of behavior that requires effective instruction and repeated reinforced practice to mastery just like everything else that we learn in life. I mean, just like the way I teach my kids at FIT to read or do math or think or write, I teach the people to do, to, I certify people to do this instructional methodology in the same exact way. So when you demystify a, a behavioral repertoire and actually identify the essential component skills involved in that repertoire and identify how to measure them how, first of all, how to teach people to do them, how to measure their doing of them, and how to evaluate when they've mastered doing it by evaluating their behavior and the outcomes produced with this with their students, then it's like effective action is possible and you can teach people to do to, to be better at their job. So, you know, when teachers struggle, they struggle because they're not trained to be effective. They're actually trained to not be effective, to be quite honest, because a lot of what they're, in, they're trained to do in the College of Education is all based on theories and belief systems that have no empirical basis, that, that are actually completely contradictory to what we know about the learning process from a scientific perspective. Teachers, unfortunately, aren't even given the opportunity to learn that stuff. So they're given a bunch of theories and they're taught about self-esteem and, you know, the exploratory learning and, you know, all this warm and fuzzy stuff. And then they're thrown to the wolves. 
and, and expected to like be effective when they've never been taught to be effective at all. And some teachers figure it out on their own by luck, you know, what, whatever it may be. There's some teachers who get it, but there's some that don't. And it's not, there's no fault there. There's no fault. The, the fault is the system doesn't work and teacher training programs are ineffective. You know, even teachers who, who actually know how to be effective, they're, they're not supported to be effective by the way the system is designed. They're not, they're not allowed to be. They're not, they're not able to be. So teachers have absolutely no power. They are completely disempowered. They're disempowered by their training and they're disempowered by the system in which they're forced to work, which is why the recidivism rate is so high. I mean, it's a really tough, I mean, look, even as a profoundly effective educator, like I am and the people I train, it's hard. It's, it's hard even when you're really good at this because you're trained well, not because you're talented, because you're trained well. So, you know, teachers deserve to be trained to be effective. And then they deserve to be empowered to be allowed to be in charge and be effective in their classrooms. And none of those things are the case at this point. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, from some of the teachers who I've interviewed, and I would understand this being in their position, um, like th there's sort of like three phases of this. There's like they hear this for the first time, and they basically yeah. think you're a jerk. Whoever's whoever's right. whoever is uh, uh, trumpeting the message because you're trying to help people, uh, they're yeah. like, oh my gosh, what a jerk coming after me. And then some yeah. of them um, realize that there's a, a small group of them that dig in deeper. And then from, again, from my experience, um, Oh, wait a minute, there's something to this. And then they get angry and they get angry yeah. because they're stuck in a system that doesn't really support this. And by the way, as we'll talk about, I mean, I've been doing mostly this work in reading, you do it in learning, but there's this percentage of people who will just figure out how to learn. They'll just yeah. figure out how to read. They'll just figure, it's just a percentage. And there's a percentage of teachers who will just figure out despite inadequate training, as you call it, to teach. Yes. There are, it's, we're not saying you're doomed for failure, but yeah. there's, what, what I see is there's an awful lot of margin in here where even if you figured it out as a teacher and you have a certain percentage of kids who are figuring it out, there's a really wide gap of students who aren't figuring it out. And again, the system really is sort of an industrial revolution system, not in, not in, not designed around what each child actually needs. And I think any teacher who is a parent will just go to there. Cause again, none of this is meant to be, um, uh, meant to be putting down teachers, um, uh, particularly an indictment on teachers, but it's, it's meant to be, uh, Hey, maybe you should think this through, but every parent knows if you have more than one child, you know, they need drastically different things. Like first time we had a kid, I'm like, Oh, well, it's going to be a lot like me. Well, at least it'll be half me and half my wife, I guess. And then right. we have a kid and they're like, Oh, that that's a little bit different. So okay. Now we're going to have a second one. Well, at least the second one's going to be like the first one that didn't happen. And then the third one, you know, it's like, people are all different and this system is not really designed. I think every, even if you are somewhat angry as a teacher and educator watching this, what Kimberly says, like, just think about this in other aspects of your life and you'll understand. And again, but teacher, you have the hardest job in the world. You in the get world. 20 to 40 ducklings to do the same thing and they aren't all gifted the same way. Like that is super difficult. So, 
there is a, a tendency to try to figure out why the kid is is not doing it, particularly the most the harshest cases. I would imagine again, if I were a teacher, I'm not I'm only gonna deal with the harshest cases right now because I can get everybody sort of in the middle. I can actually maybe do the most effective job I can do based on the circumstances I've been given. So I, I want to make sure that we we covered that. Um, yeah. One of the things that uh, that we start then in your book, you start talking about the crisis. I think there's most people watching this don't realize there's an education crisis happening. Uh, I would have had zero clue. Give me a little bit on the stats of it that are yeah. verifiable, you know, stats reported by government commissions and other things that will blow people's minds. Well, and it's not that there's an educational crisis happening now there's there's that there's been an educational crisis happening since the dawn of public education <laughs> that's what other people don't real like most people don't they, they don't think there's one now and they don't realize that there always has been one there's never been a time where there's not been one if you consider a majority of american students below proficiency a crisis as i do so there's never been a time in our country's history when a majority of students have been at the proficient level, not once. And there's always this reference to, oh, the good old days of schooling, you know, during that post-World War II era, those kids were, under, were below proficiency too. So th that's all myth, you know, th that's all myth. There was never a time when a majority of kids were being effectively educated ever. So there's always been an educational crisis and there's, it's never not been one. So, so there's that. So more, so a global, I mean, across the board in a general measure of students, more than 60% of kids are below proficiency in all academic subjects. So more than 60%. Now, when you start pulling out race and socioeconomic status, it becomes more and more horrifying. So more than 80% of children of color and those living in poverty are below proficiency in reading and more than 90% of children of color are below proficiency in math and science. If that's not a crisis, I don't know what is. And the point is, is it's always been that way. Always. It's never not been that way. <laughs> it that's crazy. And I think what's really interesting about it is I know, again, there'd be a lot of people listening going, that can't be true. Like I was fine. Yeah. My friends turned out fine. And then where, where it seems to really come into play. And you even talked about it, like in the book, in your center, you opened up at, at UNR, you had teachers and professors bringing you their kids. And then now that I've been interviewing all these, we're doing, again, we're doing this project specifically on reading. You do more than reading, but a lot of people just do reading. A lot of teachers are bringing their kids and it really, they don't think about about it or deal with it and really deny it in a lot of cases until it hits your doorstep, which by the way, I would be completely guilty of too. So I'm not, this is uh, I, I'm in that same boat, but these stats sound ridiculous to believe. I'm sure there's a person of color mad at hearing 80%. That's, that's racist. I'm sure there's someone in uh, a regular it's not racist. Know, it's just the data. Uh, right. But, but, it, but there are people who are going to be defensive about it. Right. And oh, then and there's why? people. Oh, saying, oh, 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 and why that? And I, oh, I, yes. And please, I mean, again, I'm very clear in my book that the, the, those data have nothing to do with, uh, those kids being less educable than white kids. Sure, right. it, it, yeah. Absolutely not. 
That was uh, the old racist, you know, thought, oh obviously, but obviously not true. We know that. And obviously you mentioned too, that uh, a lot of schools would think uh, poor children, well, they weren't capable of learning well either. And so uh, when, when really, when it was the rich kids who couldn't read, they had to come up with a diagnosis. And that oh, was, yeah. I remember. That's you- the only reason LD, dis- dis- di- all these learning disabilities, diagnoses, they started in the 1950s because rich white people were like, well, why can't my kid read? Oh, well, there has to be some pathology now besides these, you know, children of color and these poor kids who are just are stupid. Now we've got to come up with a real reason why our schools are failing to, you know, produce literate and numerate white kids. Yeah. I mean, so- if there's anything, I mean, to be honest with you, the learning disability get racket is the biggest racist thing out there because first they were invented to excuse failures by schools of rich white kids. Now, they're, you know, it's an unbelievably disproportionate amount of kids of color who are classified with learning disabilities now. So that now there's this medical reason why schools are continuing to fail to effectively educate children of color. And that, you know, it allows us to continue to not look at educate, you know, educational inequality, um, all of the things that are the real reasons why kids of color are failed across the board. I mean, most of the time. Um, and it, it, it's, it's really a crisis. Yeah. So it keeps, it allows them the system to keep marginalizing them and it actually just makes the margin wider and wider and wider. Um, and yep. what I thought was really interesting too, um, uh, when the national assessment of educational progress scores are evaluated, which I learned this is NAEP, they call it, uh, yep. with it's a, a national commission, right? With respect to socioeconomic level inequities are apparent. More than 80% of low income eighth graders scored below proficiency in reading and math in 2019. Let me read that again. More than 80% based on NAEP, you can go look it up. NAEP national assessment of educational progress, more than 80% of low income eighth graders scored below proficiency in reading and math in 2019. Now, here's the other thing. People, particularly adults, if you look around and say, well, everyone around me is fine. This is garbage. If people don't talk about these things, it's a shameful thing to not be able to read well or do math well or whatever. There's, you know, I learned a term doing this documentary called subliteracy and it made more sense to me. It was, it was more like, um, it, it made more sense to me like food insecurity. It's not that a kid yeah. in a lot of neighborhood is going to go home and not get a single grape for the weekend. It's that they probably don't have enough resources to have three square meals. Oh, Okay, right. that makes sense. Well, subliteracy doesn't mean uh, illiteracy would be, I guess you can't read anything, or that's what people think of it. But subliteracy makes sense to me. Like, no, there's, there's, uh, we're interviewing a, a surgeon, by the way, who was subliterate, had to get private tutoring. Um, we have, you know, John Corcoran's amazing story of being a teacher who couldn't read. I mean, yep. these stories are happening all around you, and people just don't talk about them because there's so much shame associated with them. My, my hope of the documentary is to change the conversation from shame to one of, hey, let's let's start dealing with this if you have an issue don't be ashamed about it there are actually things that can work we were working with a guy david oh not we we i filmed it it was my job was easy um that nora was working with this gentleman david in his early 60s who in like six days of instruction i gotta wait to see because it's been about a week but he emailed me and said nick you wouldn't believe he couldn't read well at all and he had huge anxiety negative self-talk and we went to dinner the first night after his first lesson and he said something and I could tell he was a really good guy. He's a really bright guy. He used to fill in, I believe, for Bill Gates at, at speeches when Bill couldn't make it. But he's wow. a really bright guy, but never learned to read. He was really nervous about coming, said he's gotten lost, gotten on the wrong plane multiple times. And he sends me this email and he says, 
Uh, or at the first night of dinner, he says this, this, he keeps repeating these sort of, my brain is broken my, and, and these sort of things. And I just stopped him and said, like really politely said, David, um, you got to stop trying to excuse this as something that we both know it's not. I understand that that's 60 years of programming. It's really hard to believe, but I can tell you're a really good guy. You're brilliant. Your brain is not broken. And I'm, I'm going to let Nora do her job because Nora's training him over the next week. And then you just, you tell me after that, but let's just agree from now on. You're just going to stop saying that. He's like, right. All right. And he said, I really appreciate you saying that. So, all right, we're good. We're done. All right, we move on. And so I got an email from him and they filmed all the footage and he said, Nick, you'd have no idea how much my anxiety has gone away. He said, I didn't realize how much this inability and this hiding all these things, um, was, was causing problems. Um, with what I was doing, you know, with, with everything else in my life. And it's just amazing that if you are, uh, if you have inefficiencies in a certain area, how much you don't realize how much they're affecting every area of your life or could be. So I, I found that like firsthand seeing it myself, I thought it was incredible. Um, I, I want to talk for a second uh, about your son. This is a great story. Yeah. Your son, Jack, <laughs> uh, he goes to preschool. Um, teacher requests a meeting. You've even been working with him before preschool because you have these skills. And she says, I think he has a learning disability and right. I will read the behaviors that gave her concern. And then you can talk. He would not sign in to class properly. So he would not write his name on the sign in sheet properly. Number two, he refused to stop playing to come to circle time when called. <laughs> this is a four-year-old or three-year-old or whatever. And it's when shown pretty- any letter of the alphabet, he would always call it P. So tell me <laughs> when you got called in for this meeting, uh, what went through your brain? Well, oh, it was just so cl- well, first of all, you have to know my son because he he's now 15, by the way. And I was slightly mortified that the story is in my book, but he's fine with it. Um, he was a he was, you know, powerfully reinforced by, you know, making people laugh. And it started early on with my daughter. I mean, it was like their thing because she was five years older than him. So anyway, so he was just very much a silly, hilarious, he still is, kid. So making people laugh was the best. And he was also like, you know, as all kids are, you know, he wasn't dumb and he was very sensitive to contingencies. So when he came into the classroom and all his buddies were already there playing in the corner, you know, scribbling something really fast was a much easier thing to do and get to his playtime and you know pretending he didn't hear the teacher when he was called for circle time so he could continue to play with his trucks was and they you know they didn't make him come to circle time so it worked the payoff and then i will tell you potty humor was a huge thing in my house and i i will admit it we created this monster so he thought it was hilarious when he learned the letter P at FIT because he was doing FIT learning for a long time before he started preschool. So he knew all his letters. I mean, I, I had school proofed this kid, I thought. I forgot about the behavioral stuff. But anyway, so he thought it was hilarious that there was a letter that called P that was like P that you did that made him laugh and made everybody else laugh. So every letter was P at school because he thought it was hilarious. Uh, so I knew all this, right? So I go in and it's very serious, you know, like the whole school's in this meeting, right? Like the school psychologist and the director of early childhood development and the headmaster. And, you know, it's this very serious meeting. I, they didn't really know who I was at this point, which was unfortunate for them. <laughs> they didn't know their audience. So my husband and I, two PhDs in behavioral science, 
who know exactly what my who our, our son can do because we've been measuring it for a long time. Coming in, you know, they say all this stuff. So anyway, so and of course their answer was to handle it outside the classroom, which is always is. So all these problems were occurring in this teacher's classroom. But the solution was to have him evaluated and then put in some kind of intervention outside the classroom, which let's think about that. How does that make any sense, right? So of course, that's the first thing I went after. I said, well, okay, so it seems like this stuff's just happened in the, in the classroom. Seems like the classroom is the problematic environment. Like we should probably address it inside the environment in which the problem's happening. Um, anyway, so long story short, it was, you know, it went from, neuropsychological evaluation and a label and a classification to he earns a star sticker every time he follows instructions and says his letters right. And then when he gets home, he can trade those in for like a, like a Jolly Rancher I keep in the top of the cabinet, man. And guess what? In like three days, the kid was fine. It was like a no brainer, stupid intervention. But it, again, they, it was this dramatic thing rather than let's evaluate what are, what are the, what is the context in which the behavior is occurring? And firstly, and secondly, and most importantly, what's the payoff, man? What is the payoff? Like, what? If, so I, I asked her, what do you do when you call him, tell him to come to circle time? And he doesn't. She's like, well, I'll ask him again. And then on the third, when I work, when I ask the third time, I, I just know that he's just not ready. And I'm like, and he will never be ready. He will never be ready to leave his trucks and come to circle time on his own. That is never, you're going to be waiting until he's 61 years old. Like, so of course he's not coming to circle time because you ask him three times and nothing happens. Like try like prompting him to come to circle time and then praise when he does. Like that might be an easy solution. <laughs> I, I love the fact that you said when we were talking, uh, when I was in New York City with you, you were talking about how, um, you know, a, a, a thing to look out for as a parent who uh, is being told their child has learning disability is if their child learned everything else more or less fine at home. They learned how to walk. They learned how to talk. And by the way, they can even be a little bit delayed. I mean, we're not all, we're not all ready to do the same things at the same times, but if a kid learns everything at home in, 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 and then goes to, and then goes to school and now all of a sudden can't learn, it, it's probably a school problem, not a kid problem. <laughs> you think like that, you know, although the, the psychological establishment has done a very good job you know, selling this, you know, reading disability, math disability, all these disabilities as things. It's not true because the learning process is actually the same regardless of what you're learning. So I don't care if you're learning to play a video game, if you're learning to play golf, if you're learning to play the violin, or if you're learning to read. It's the same fundamental process, which is the repeated reinforcement of behavior over time until it becomes neurologically permanent. And more importantly, the repeated reinforcement of component skills. So first things first. So like a kid doesn't pick up the violin and play Chopin. A kid learns, the, uh, uh, and the, the kid only, the successful violin players learn this way, which is they learn the essential component skills to fluency first. So that's how you learn. I don't care what, is, what you're learning. And, and to be honest with you, that's, it's not selective. So like I've worked with kids who have profound neurological learning problems, like kids on the autism spectrum, kids with severe Down syndrome, kids with acquired brain injury, kids with other kinds of, you know, genetic conditions that have grandly impacted their neurology and their ability to learn from the environment that they struggle to learn everything. 
They struggle to learn to walk, to talk, to feed themselves, to dress themselves, to, to do any adaptive skill. So if your child is learned to walk and talk and feed themselves and dress themselves and play with their buddies and play video games and, and the only thing they're showing to re learn is reading, um, you know, I can't believe that, that the establishment's gotten away with it for this long. It's like you smell a rat. I mean, hello, like oh, suddenly they have, that's the one part of their brain that doesn't work is the reading part, which doesn't exist, by the way. It's, there's no evidence that that's the case. So like, oh, the reading part's the only part that's disabled. It's a joke. It's not true. <laughs> you, you talked about a couple of things that I thought were fascinating analogies uh when we talked you gave a video game analogy of a bunch of the kids that you come into your center to get help are fantastically good at video games and talk about the difference in the structure in video games is not uh oh you're old enough now we're just going to move you to the next level whether exactly. you did good this game or not tell, tell us about how that structure works and how it applies to education well and that's i think that should be the most empowering thing for parents because you know a, a lot of it's like video games are bad I mean, and I'm a parent and I have a 15 year old son. So man, Xbox is like a way of life in my house. Life. Yes. Way of life. And my daughter's 20, but she went through that too. So, you know, I've been there as a parent and I've been there as a professional. So it's always bad news, you know, like too much screen time that, you know, it's always that kind of stuff, but take a moment to hear some good news, which is that if your child is a proficient gamer, there is absolutely nothing wrong with your child's ability to learn. Like that is an unbelievable testament to your child's learning abilities. And you should watch them actually. You should watch them play their video games because I want you to get what is entailed in that. The coordination of systems that goes on, you know, digit coordination with, I mean, it is an unbelievably complex skill set that your child has acquired and the reason they've acquired it is because video games are designed by people who are informed about behavioral science. They are not designed by people from the College of Education, man. I promise you that's not the case because video game designers have to design their games so that kids become good at playing them, so they'll play them more, so they'll buy them more. Like video game designers want, they do what works because what works is what sells. That's it, period. And what works is designing a game based on the science behind how learning actually works. Otherwise, they'd be epic failures. I mean, kids would never think, why do you think kids hate reading and math and writing? Because they're so bad at it. And they're bad at it because it's not taught properly. So they don't get good at it. Kids love doing what they're good at. I mean, competency builds wanting to continue doing something. Being incompetent makes you want to avoid it. So kids become competent at video games because that's what they're, they, they're designed that way. They're in, designed intentionally so kids can learn them. They can learn them quickly. They can get better at them and they can advance to higher levels once they've mastered previous levels. That is the way they're designed. So video games are designed according to how learning actually works, which is they're broken down into, into finite skills. And they start, at the, they start at the most essential skills kids have to have to, master, to play the game and they have to master those first. And then when they master those, they get to increase in the level and they get to go to a harder world or they get to go to a harder, you know, they get to earn new weapons or do something harder. And then they have to master that level and they move up the ladder. I mean, I was a guitar hero. I got it to expert level on guitar hero and guitar hero was a thing. Did you ever play yep. guitar hero? Yep. I mean, I wouldn't, if I had, if I had tried to play guitar hero starting at expert level 
I would have thrown the guitar out the window. But I didn't. I started at the beginning level because that's how you have to. You're not allowed. You can't jump levels. They don't let you. So I became an expert guitar hero player, which is hilarious. And I'm actually not that proud of it because it does take a lot of practice. But I mean, am I talented? No, I just spent way too many late night hours avoiding doing doctoral level work playing Guitar Hero and it was designed so I could master it. I mean, well, it's well, common sense, people. It is common You didn't sense. have to play it in a classroom in, bunch, in front of a bunch of other kids and just blend in and then be embarrassed about saying, you know, like with reading, at some point it becomes embarrassing for a kid in third or fourth grade to have to sound it out out loud because they haven't had enough repetitive instruction. So yeah. they just get sort of matriculated where they're they're failing in a way in this one skill, but it's proficient enough so they push them along. Um, you know, that's that's a, a big deal. I mean, I mean, it's, it's such a big deal. deal. I, I love the way you you explain that. Now, the other thing I think is really interesting. You said something about. Um, like, and you talked about your son and his, his punishment. If a punishment isn't working, I thought it was mind blowing how you talked about that. Like if a punishment isn't working, it's probably because it's not as bad of a punishment as the alternative to the kid. Tell me about the, or it's, not a, or it's not a punishment at all. <laughs> like, yeah. so I mean, that's the, you know, there's certain things that have been kind of pulled out of behavioral science and, and pediatricians are, notorious for doing this. Like, so timeout, which I'm sure everyone's heard of, but timeout actually stems from behavioral science. That is a, that is a intervention that was developed and, and studied in my science, right? But pediatricians got wind of this and took it and then recommended it to parents just blanketly. But, but what, what, what these things miss is what we call function. So behavioral function. So what behavioral function is, is, a, you know, a behavior only occurs at any strength because it's been historically followed by some type of reinforcement. So the function of that behavior is the, what was reinforcing it to make it be in existence in the first place. So for instance, if a kid is given, you know, clean out the dishwasher, go to your room, you're in timeout. Well, in that moment, the kid threw a tantrum. And again, I would never know from one occurrence. I'd have to like evaluate, like study the kid and see how, what the pattern is. But let's just say hypothetically that that always happens. So the kid's asked to do the, take, clean out the dishwasher, throws a tantrum, gets sent to his room. That's not a punisher. That's a reinforcer. What that means is that's actually reinforcing and strengthening and ensuring that behavior continues because what is that child gotten out of it, avoiding cleaning out the dishwasher. But because people don't understand function of behavior, they think timeout is a universal punishment. No, it isn't. Timeout is quite often a powerful reinforcer when, when escape from a demand is the reinforcer. Now, if a kid's at a play date with all of his best pals and he's like a three-year-old and they're in the bike club and they, you know, and he bites another kid and then he gets put in a playpen in, in, the, in the room and can see all of his buddies still having fun. This is exactly what I did with my son, Jack, by the way. So my son, Jack, liked to bite when he was in his cute little play group and they were like one and two years old. And he had all his buddies and, you know, he'd always take turns at whose house it was. And, and I would have, a, I brought my playpen everywhere, even when it was at my house. So when my son wanted a toy or like wasn't happy with one of his buddies, he'd bite the kid. And my son would get picked up and put in a playpen 
in the middle of the play date so he could still see all the fun action happening in the room, but he just didn't get to engage. And so he was in a timeout for about five minutes. That's all it was. He had to sit there for five minutes. We And I tried to train all the moms. It was very good for all the moms because they learned a lot of really cool things. I was like, just ignore. He's going to cry and make himself look really sad. Don't feel sorry for him. This is really important because it's not functional for him to bite kids. We're going to ignore him. So he would hang out in there when he was calm and sitting in his place. Then he got to come back out. And guess what? You know, he stopped biting in a couple weeks. So that was an effective timeout. That was an effective punisher. Why? Because it got the behavior decreased. But if the behavior is continuing, if the behavior is promulgating, if it's getting worse, then you don't have a punisher. You've got a reinforcer working somewhere. So that's why behavioral function is so important to think about, right? Like, you know, just because a lot of parents think reprimanding and lecturing is always a punisher. No, it isn't. A lot of kids love that attention from you. They love it. That's like heroin for a kid. I mean, literally, it's like, what have I told you? And, oh, I'm getting mommy mad. Like, that's like a little bit of a, I mean, you got to be careful. Sometimes your attention is like a little vending machine popping out candy bars. So it, that's why behavioral science is such a gift for parents, because you realize the power consequences hold for the behavior your kids engage in that drive you in completely insane. And that you also hold the power to get rid of it. And even uh, whether it's, it may not be a complete avoidance, it may be a delay of the dishwashing or whatever. Yes, and it may a be delay. a delay in a room with a cell phone or a TV or an Xbox or a you know a book. Even I mean, different kids respond differently. But I I love that you 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 speak pretty strongly. Again, anyone who's interested in this, uh, you know, check out Dr. Kimberly's stuff. There's lots of it online. Buy the book, uh, Blind Spots: Why Students Fail and the Science That Can Save Them. Um, you talk pretty. Uh, pretty strongly about many things, but also the psychological establishment and IQ tests and, and psychological testing. Tell me about the issue with these. Okay. So, and this is one of the hardest things, you know, the reason I call my book blind spots, by the way, is because, you know, we all live in this, in these two realms where we're very comfortable. So like we live in the realm of what we know that we know, right? So like, I know I'm an expert in behavioral science. And I know I am not an expert in astrophysics. So I am very comfortable with what I know, what I do not know. And that's all fine. But the dangerous realm is the realm of what we don't know, we don't know. Because when we don't know, we don't know something, then we have blind spots. Like we can't see because we don't even know there's something that we should maybe we could be aware of or see something differently. So that's what blind spots. So one of the biggest blind spots that the that modern psych, that mainstream psychology has created for the public is that psychological tests are actual evidence or directly measure the supposed inherent things that psycho, like psychologists suggest they do. Like, so for instance, if you're like, I'll take, let's take dyslexia, because I work with a lot of kids who have classifications of dyslexia and don't even get me started. So let's just, I'm going to talk you through what this really entails. So, so a, a, a kid struggling to, to read, right, due to ineffective instruction and insufficient mastery of component skills, and I promise you that's why, 
But the teacher, of course, doesn't know this because they're blind spots, not trained that way, working inside of an effective system. All many, there's many reasons. So the teacher sees a kid who's significant. I mean, every kid struggles to read. Look at our educational statistics. But then the really, the ones that are really struggling the most get referred. Right, usually referred for having some kind of neuropsychological evaluation. So the parents, of course, don't know. They, you know, teachers the expert. I'll do it. I should do it. So the parents take their child, or they might even ask their pediatrician, who also have blind spots and don't know this either, because they're not trained in this stuff in behavioral science at all. So they might get referred for a neuropsychological evaluation. So here's what happens in a neuropsychological evaluation: a, a kid takes, you know, perform, engages in a series of tests, right? like some reading tests, some other tests. And what those tests actually measure is that child's performance. And another word for performance is their behavior. It's what they do. So they're presented with a test and they behave with respect to that test by completing it in whatever way they're supposed to. So what's actually measured by that test is the child's behavior, period. Now, when, a when that psychologist has the tests completed and they get the child's score, then they make an inference about why the child performed that way. Why those scores were super low or super high or average, whatever they were, the psychologist doesn't have access to the why at all. That hasn't been measured. That hasn't been directly observed the why doesn't exist anywhere in that testing situation. All that exists is that child performed on a test, period. So then the traditional neuropsychologist or psychologist will then make an inference about the why. And they'll say, oh, well, this score is this low because your child has dyslexia. Dyslexia has never, not once, ever been measured in the history of humanity because it doesn't exist in the brain anywhere. It's a construct. It's not something that can be measured. The only evidence of dyslexia is the child's behavior with respect to reading material. Like a child behaves a certain way with, when they read, they flip some letters, they stick letters in when they shouldn't be there, or take them out when they should be, whatever. That's all behavior. That's all ki stuff kids do. And then a psychologist infers why they're doing it. And they say they're doing it because there's something wrong with their brain. And I'm going to call that dyslexia. It's never been measured. You can't see it. You can't point to it. It's never been a part of the evaluation. It's an inference. It's a theory. Another theory is the child hasn't mastered essential reading skills. And maybe they just need effective instruction and repeated reinforced practice. I don't know. Maybe. Right? But that's usually never offered. It's, it's never like, it's not offered as well. One possibility could be that they have a learning problem, but another possibility could be, it's usually presented as, okay, the, the test says this, and that means that dyslexia has been identified. But it's all really hypothetical and, and based in, in an inference. Like those tests can't, don't measure neurology. They're, that doesn't get directly measured at all. It's the child's behavior that's measured. And then an inference about why they behave that way is made. And that's why, you know, I'm trained in a, so behavioral science is a natural science. So we're more aligned with biology, chemistry, physics, neuroscience, not neuropsychology, neuroscience, which is very different. So as a natural science, we are trained first and foremost in skepticism. Secondly, we're trained in humility and, and actually, and third, we're trained in looking for how we're wrong. 
Like I'm constantly trying to find where I'm wrong. I'm not trying to prove myself right all the time. I'm trying to find where I'm wrong because that's what scientists do. Because we know we never know all the answers. We know we've never completely answered a question. We know that there's always more to discover. That's the whole point of the scientific process. Dogmatism is, is the, is the op, like science is the opposite of dogmatism. Like dogmatism comes from beliefs-based systems. When you believe something and you hold to it, no matter what anybody else says, it's your ideology, it's like your thing. And so you're on a quest to prove yourself right all the time. That's not how scientists are trained. Scientists are trained the other way, which is that you're skeptical about anything. Even the evidence I produce with kids, even the outcomes I produce with kids, I'm always looking for where did, where did it not work? Where did we not get it? Where did it break down? Where are we not doing that? You know, how can we be better? What's, you know, we're always looking for where we're wrong. Do you know what I mean? So that's what really breaks my heart about the testing situation because parents are given this diagnosis as, as if it's a, well, that's it. I've explained it. Your child's, your child's reading problem is because they're dyslexic and I am an expert and I'm telling you this and there you go, which is so shockingly wrong because that's, they haven't, there's no evidence of that at all. All the evidence is that they, they struggle on a reading assessment, which is so silly because you, the only reason they're in the neuropsychological evaluation is because they're struggling with reading in the classroom. So of course they struggled on a reading assessment. That's, really that's literally why they're there. I love it. Now, I only have a couple <laughs> minutes left. Everyone needs to check out your book, Blind Spots, Why Students Fail on the Science That Can Save Them. There is hope. There's things like precision teaching and direct instruction. Yes. Give a little bit of hope of, of what the results, when you get kids in there who are supposedly severely, severe learning right. disabilities, lots of diagnoses, lots of ADD, and lots. Of, and by the way, no one is 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 disputing the fact that many of these things, learning disabilities, ADD, there's a very small percentage of people who have them, like yeah. neurologically have them, but it's a much smaller than like way smaller than the, the diagnoses. Or 20% the that are classified. What's that? 20% of school kids are classified and, and less than 1% of kids have an actual neurological learning impairment. So Got 20 it. times too many kids are being classified. Got it. So obviously you have a system. There's there's also other behavioral science systems. It's just a, a great way to learn. What do you say to parents out there to give them hope that you know their kids in the fourth grade or the seventh grade or the eighth grade and they're they're struggling and they have severe learning disabilities, um, particularly in one or two subjects, not all of them. What do you say to give to give parents hope and what should they do? Well, the first thing I would say is be, you know, be empowered by knowing that your child most likely doesn't have a learning disability. Um, that they have been failed instructionally um, because that's how school is designed. So schools are designed based on exposing kids to lots of content and then moving on according to an arbitrary timeline, regardless of whether or not that content has been mastered. Um, mastery meaning from a behavioral science perspective that it's something we call fluent or you know, it demonstrates fluency, which means it's automatic, effortless, neurologically permanent, available for learning new and more complicated things and so forth. So, you know, school isn't designed to produce fluency and skills. It's not possible because it because they, they move too fast and they move kids according to age rather than mastery of prerequisite skills. So, you know, being empowered by knowing that if your child struggles with math, there's, there's not a math gene. I, 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 there's all this stuff's made up. There's no reading gene and there's no math gene. Math and reading were human inventions. They, they were invented by humans to organize our world and advance our civilization. 
Math and reading, all academic skills are human inventions that are passed down via instruction, not genetics. So if your child is struggling with academic skills, there's nothing wrong with them. What's wrong is that they've been probably not effectively instructed and haven't mastered basic skills, which actually is a really empowering thing to get. Because like what the first thing I do when kids come into fit and have ha been given a classification, I give them the talk about doing versus having. Because when a kid has been given a learning disability and they're told they have dyslexia, they have dysgraphia, they have auditory processing disorder, whatever it may be, think about what that means. Like you have strep throat, you have the flu, you have, you know, uh, cancer. Like that is a, a disease model that is terribly disempowering. I mean, horribly disempowering. And it's not only is it disempowering, but it also can become a scapegoat. It can become an excuse. There's so many things. So learning disabilities are a doing, not a having. Because the only evidence for learning disabilities are things kids do. And the only, you know, the only thing to do is get them to do the more adaptive stuff and stop doing the stuff that's not working. So I have the doing versus having talk with kids all the time where I'm like, you don't have anything. Sometimes you mix up your B's and D's and we're going to fix that with practice. So we're, we're going to get you to not do that anymore. And we're going to get you to actually discriminate them correctly. Like we're going to do that. So, you know, the whole disease model that that's, it's all theoretical and it's a huge racket because there's a lot, that's a billion dollar industry, a billion dollar industry on this stuff that there's zero empirical evidence that they exist at all because it's, they're all constructs. They're, they're names for things, you know, like a kid who reverses their letters and reads the wrong way sometimes, you know, that's what all early readers do. The problem is when they don't get correct, when it doesn't get corrected and they're pushed ahead anyway, and then it becomes a big mess and then they get labeled as having a dyslexia, but dyslexia is not explained anything. That's just naming the behavior that they're engaging in. So being empowered by that and knowing that your child has, has evolved with an unbelievably complex system that is, is set up to learn from the environment. <laughs> like look at all the amazing things your kid has learned outside of school. Think about it. I mean, amazing things your kid has learned outside of school. And then ask yourself, then why the heck is everything the school's in charge of what my kid struggles with the most? And then maybe you should ask yourself why that is. And, you know, I'm telling you that the, the, the revolution that has to happen to change our educational system is going to have to start with a grassroots movement. It's going to have to be parents and teachers who have had enough and they, are gonna, they need to say enough is enough. And this has to change or otherwise it's not going to change, you know, like, so parents actually need to get upset. They need to get angry and they need to stop being gullible. Like, don't believe it. If, if, if you're called into a teacher meeting and they're, and you're told that your child has reading disability, then say, okay, well, then explain to me why he's a, he's a, you know, he can play any video game blindfolded and why he's an expert lacrosse player. And he's, you know, he, he's whatever he, all the other stuff he does well. Like the only thing he struggles to learn is stuff you're in charge of. And don't be afraid to say that and because, every, again, it's you got to take a stand. Pa teachers have to take a stand about their training and parents have to take a stand about how their kids are being educated and know that you're not alone. You know, the establishment does an amazing job making parents feel like you're the only one who has a kid who struggles. And that's not that's not by chance. That's by design. But a majority of kids struggle. It's the lucky few who don't. So you're not alone at all. You're the majority. 
Period. Thank you so much. Uh, this and much more to be found in uh, Dr. Kimberly's book, author of Blind Spots, Why Students Fail and the Science That Can Save Them. Uh, Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here on Now to Next, and we will see you next time. Take care. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.